Letter ninety four of Moral Letters to Lucilius by Lucius Annius Seneca, translated by Richard M. Gummier. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On the Value of Advice That department of philosophy which supplies precepts appropriate to the individual case, instead of framing them for mankind at large, which, for instance, advises how a husband should conduct himself toward his wife, or how a father should bring up his children or how a master should rule his slaves. This department of philosophy, I say, is accepted by some as the only significant part, while the other departments are rejected on the ground that they stray beyond the sphere of practical needs, as if any man could give advice concerning a portion of life without having first gained a knowledge of the sum of life as a whole. But Aristo the Stoic, on the contrary, believes the above-mentioned department to be of slight import. He holds that it does not sink into the mind, having in it nothing but old wives' precepts, and that the greatest benefit is derived from the actual dogmas of philosophy, and from the definition of the supreme good. When a man has gained a complete understanding of this definition, and has thoroughly learned it, he can frame for himself a precept directing what is to be done in a given case. Just as the student of javelin throwing keeps aiming at a fixed target, and thus trains the hand to give direction to the missile, and when, by instruction and practice, he has gained the desirability, he can then employ it against any target he wishes, having learned to strike not any random object, but precisely the object at which he has aimed. He who has equipped himself for the whole of life does not need to be advised concerning each separate item because he is now trained to meet his problem as a whole. For he knows not merely how he should live with his wife or his son, but how he should live aright. In this knowledge, there is also included the proper way of living with wife and children. Cleanthes holds that this department of wisdom is indeed useful, but that it is a feeble thing unless it is derived from general principles. That is, unless it is based upon a knowledge of the actual dogmas of philosophy and its main headings. This subject is therefore twofold, leading to two separate lines of inquiry. First, is it useful or useless? And second, can it of itself produce a good man? In other words, is it superfluous, or does it render all other departments superfluous? Those who urge the view that this department is superfluous argue as follows. If an object that is held in front of the eyes interferes with the vision, it must be removed. For just as long as it is in the way, it is a waste of time to offer such precepts as these. Walk thus and so. Extend your hand in that direction. Similarly, when something blinds a man's soul and hinders it from seeing a line of duty clearly, there is no use in advising him, live thus and so with your father, thus and so with your wife, for precepts will be of no avail while the mind is clouded with error. Only when the cloud is dispersed will it be clear what one's duty is in each case. Otherwise you will merely be showing the sick man what he ought to do if he were well, instead of making him well. Suppose you are trying to reveal to the poor man the art of acting rich. How can the thing be accomplished as long as his poverty is unaltered? You are trying to make clear to a starveling in what manner he is to act the part of one with a well-filled stomach. The first requisite, however, 
is to relieve him of the hunger that grips his vitals. The same thing, I assure you, holds good of all faults. The faults themselves must be removed, and precepts should not be given which cannot possibly be carried out while the faults remain. Unless you drive out the false opinions under which we suffer, the miser will never receive instruction as to the proper use of his money, nor the coward regarding the way to scorn danger. You must make the miser know that money is neither a good nor an evil. Show him men of wealth who are miserable to the last degree. You must make the coward know that things which generally frighten us out of our wits are less to be feared than rumor advertises them to be, whether the object of fear be suffering or death. That, when death comes, fixed by law for us all to suffer, it is often a great solace to reflect that it can never come again. That, in the midst of suffering, resoluteness of soul will be as good as a cure, for the soul renders lighter any burden that it endures with stubborn defiance. Remember that pain has this most excellent quality. If prolonged, it cannot be severe, and if severe, it cannot be prolonged. And that we should bravely accept whatever commands the inevitable laws of the universe lay upon us. When by means of such doctrines you have brought the erring man to a sense of his own condition, when he has learned that the happy life is not that which conforms to pleasure, but that which conforms to nature, when he has fallen deeply in love with virtue as man's sole good, and has avoided baseness as man's sole evil, and when he knows that all other things, riches, office, health, strength, dominion, fall in between and are not to be reckoned either among goods or among evils, then he will not need a monitor for every separate action. To say to him, walk thus and so, eat thus and so, this is the conduct proper for a man and that for a woman, this for a married man and that for a bachelor. Indeed, the persons who take the greatest pains to proffer such advice are themselves unable to put it into practice. It is thus that the pedagogue advises the boy, and the grandmother her grandson. It is the hottest-tempered schoolmaster who contends that one should never lose one's temper. Go into any elementary school, and you will learn that just such pronouncements, emanating from high-browed philosophers, are to be found in the lesson-book for boys. Shall you then offer precepts that are clear, or precepts that are doubtful? Those which are clear need no counsellor, and doubtful precepts gain no credence, so the giving of precepts is superfluous. Indeed, you should study the problem in this way. If you are counselling someone on a matter which is of doubtful clearness and doubtful meaning, you must supplement your precepts by proofs. And if you must resort to proofs, your means of proofs are more effective and more satisfactory in themselves. It is thus that you must treat your friend, thus your fellow-citizen, thus your associate. And why? Because it is just. Yet I can find all that material included under the head of justice. I find there that fair play is desirable in itself, that we are not forced into it by fear, nor hired to that end for pay and that no man is just who is attracted by anything in this virtue other than the virtue itself 
after convincing myself of this view and thoroughly absorbing it what good can i obtain from such precepts which only teach one who is already trained to one who knows it is superfluous to give precepts to one who does not know it is insufficient for he must be told not only what he is being instructed to do but also why i repeat are such precepts useful to him who has correct ideas about good and evil or to one who has them not the latter will receive no benefit from you for some idea that clashes with your counsel has already monopolized his attention he who has made a careful decision as to what should be sought and what should be avoided knows what he ought to do without a single word from you therefore that whole department of philosophy may be abolished there are two reasons why we go astray either there is in the soul an evil quality which has been brought about by wrong opinions or even if not possessed by false ideas the soul is prone to falsehood and rapidly corrupted by some outward appearance which attracts it in the wrong direction for this reason it is our duty either to treat carefully the diseased mind and free it from faults or to take possession of the mind when it is still unoccupied and yet inclined to what is evil both these results can be attained by the main doctrines of philosophy therefore the giving of such precepts is of no use besides if we give forth precepts to each individual the task is stupendous for one class of advice should be given to the financier another to the farmer another to the business man another to one who cultivates the good graces of royalty another to him who will seek the friendship of his equals another to him who will court those of lower rank in the case of marriage you will advise one person how he should conduct himself with a wife who before her marriage was a maiden and another how he should behave with a woman who had previously been wedded to another how the husband of a rich woman should act or another man with a dowerless spouse or do you not think that there is some difference between a barren woman and one who bears children between one advanced in years and a mere girl between a mother and a stepmother we cannot include all the types and yet each type requires a separate treatment but the laws of philosophy are concise and are binding in all cases moreover the precepts of wisdom should be definite and certain when things cannot be defined they are outside the sphere of wisdom for wisdom knows the proper limits of things we should therefore do away with this department of precepts because it cannot afford to all what it promises only to a few wisdom however embraces all between the insanity of people in general and the insanity which is subject to medical treatment there is no difference except that the latter is suffering from disease and the former from false opinions in the one case the symptoms of madness may be traced to ill health the other is the ill health of the mind if one should offer precepts to a madman how he ought to speak how he ought to walk how he ought to conduct himself in public and in private he would be more of a lunatic than the person whom he was advising what is really necessary is to treat the black bile and remove the essential cause of the madness 
and this is what should also be done in the other case, that of the mind diseased. The madness itself must be shaken off, otherwise your words of advice will vanish into thin air. This is what Aristo says, and I shall answer his arguments one by one. First, in opposition to what he says about one's obligation to remove that which blocks the eye and hinders the vision. I admit that such a person does not need precepts in order to see, but that he needs treatment for the curing of his eyesight and the getting rid of the hindrance that handicaps him. For it is nature that gives us our eyesight, and he who removes obstacles restores to nature her proper function. But nature does not teach us our duty in every case. Again, if a man's cataract is cured, he cannot immediately after his recovery give back their eyesight to other men also. But when we are freed from evil, we can free others also. There is no need of encouragement or even counsel for the eye to be able to distinguish different colors. Black and white can be differentiated without prompting from another. The mind, on the other hand, needs many precepts in order to see what it should do in life. Although in eye treatment, also, the physician not only accomplishes the cure, but gives advice into the bargain. He says, There is no reason why you should at once expose your weak vision to a dangerous glare. Begin with darkness, and then go into half-lights, and finally be more bold, accustoming yourself gradually to the bright light of day. There is no reason why you should study immediately after eating. There is no reason why you should impose hard tasks upon your eyes when they are swollen and inflamed. Avoid winds and strong blasts of cold air that blow into your face. And other suggestions of the same sort, which are just as valuable as drugs themselves. The physician's art supplements remedies by advice. But, comes the reply, error is the source of sin. Precepts do not remove error, nor do they rout our false opinions on the subject of good and evil. I admit that precepts alone are not effective in overthrowing the mind's mistaken beliefs, but they do not on that account fail to be of service when they accompany other measures also. In the first place, they refresh the memory. In the second place, when sorted into their proper classes, the matters which showed themselves in a jumbled mass when considered as a whole can be considered in this with greater care. According to our opponent's theory, you might even say that consolation and exhortation were superfluous. Yet they are not superfluous, neither, therefore, is counsel. But it is folly, they retort, to prescribe what a sick man ought to do, just as if he were well, when you should really restore his health. For without health precepts are not worth a jot. But have not sick men and sound men something in common, concerning which they need continual advice? For example, not to grasp greedily after food, and to avoid getting overtired. Poor and rich have certain precepts which fit them both. Cure their greed, then, people say, and you will not need to lecture either the poor or the rich, provided that in the case of each of them the craving has subsided. But is it not one thing to be free from lust for money, and another thing to know how to use this money? Misers do not know the proper limits in money matters, 
but even those who are not misers fail to comprehend its use. Then comes the reply. Do away with error, and your precepts become unnecessary. That is wrong, for suppose that avarice is slackened, that luxury is confined, that rashness is reined in, and that laziness is pricked by the spur, even after vices are removed, we must continue to learn what we ought to do, and how we ought to do it. Nothing, it is said, will be accomplished by applying advice to the more serious faults. No, and not even medicine can master incurable diseases. It is nevertheless used in some cases as a remedy, in others as a relief. Not even the power of universal philosophy, though it summon all its strength for the purpose, will remove from the soul what is now a stubborn and chronic disease. But wisdom, merely because she cannot cure everything, is not incapable of making cures. People say, What good does it do to point out the obvious? A great deal of good, for we sometimes know facts without paying attention to them. Advice is not teaching. It merely engages the attention and rouses it, and concentrates the memory and keeps it from losing grip. We miss much that is set before our very eyes. Advice is, in fact, a sort of exhortation. The mind often tries not to notice even that which lies before our eyes. We must therefore force upon it the knowledge of things that are perfectly well known. One might repeat here the saying of Calvus about Vitinius. You all know that bribery has been going on, and everyone knows that you know it. You know that friendship should be scrupulously honored, and yet you do not hold it in honor. You know that a man does wrong in requiring chastity of his wife, while he himself is intriguing with wives of other men. You know that, as your wife should have no dealings with a lover, neither should you yourself with a mistress, and yet you do not act accordingly. Hence, you must be continually brought to remember these facts, for they should not be in storage, but ready for use. And whatever is wholesome should be often discussed, and often brought before the mind, so that it may be not only familiar to us, but also ready to hand. And remember, too, that in this way what is clear often becomes clearer. But if, comes the answer, your precepts are not obvious, you will be bound to add proofs. Hence the proofs, and not the precepts, will be helpful. But cannot the influence of the monitor avail even without proofs? It is like the opinions of a legal expert, which hold good even though the reasons for them are not delivered. Moreover, the precepts which are given are of great weight in themselves, whether they be woven into a fabric of song or condensed into prose proverbs like the famous wisdom of Cato. Buy not what you need, but what you must have. That which you do not need is dear even at a farthing. Or those oracular or oracular-like replies such as be thrifty with time, know thyself. Shall you need to be told the meaning when someone repeats to you lines like these? Forgetting trouble is the way to cure it. Fortune favors the brave, but the coward is foiled by his faint heart. 
such maxims need no special pleader. They go straight to our emotions, and help us simply because nature is exercising her proper function. The soul carries within itself the seed of everything that is honorable, and this seed is stirred to growth by advice, as a spark that is fanned by a gentle breeze develops its natural fire. Virtue is aroused by a touch, a shock. Moreover, there are certain things which, though in the mind, yet are not ready to hand, but begin to function easily as soon as they are put into words. Certain things lie scattered about in various places, and it is impossible for the unpractised mind to arrange them in order. Therefore, we should bring them into unity and join them, so that they may be more powerful and more of an uplift to the soul. Or, if precepts do not avail at all, then every method of instruction should be abolished, and we should be content with nature alone. Those who maintain this view do not understand that one man is lively and alert of wit, another sluggish and dull, while certainly some men have more intelligence than others. The strength of the wit is nourished and kept growing by precepts. It adds new points of view to those which are inborn and corrects depraved ideas. But suppose, people retort, that a man is not the possessor of sound dogmas. How can advice help him when he is chained down by vicious dogmas? In this, assuredly, that he is freed therefrom, for his natural disposition has not been crushed, but overshadowed and kept down. Even so it goes on endeavoring to rise again, struggling against the influences that make for evil. But when it wins support and receives the aid of precepts, it grows stronger, provided only that the chronic trouble has not corrupted or annihilated the natural man. For in such a case, not even the training that comes from philosophy, striving with all its might, will make restoration. What difference, indeed, is there between the dogmas of philosophy and precepts, unless it be this, that the former are general and the latter special? both deal with advice, the one through the universal, the other through the particular. Some say, if one is familiar with upright and honorable dogmas, it will be superfluous to advise him. By no means, for this person has indeed learned to do things which he ought to do, but he does not see with sufficient clearness what these things are. For we are hindered from accomplishing praiseworthy deeds not only by our emotions, but also by want of practice in discovering the demands of a particular situation. Our minds are often under good control, and yet at the same time are inactive and untrained in finding the path of duty. And advice makes this clear. Again it is written, Cast out all false opinions concerning good and evil, but replace them with true opinions. Then advice will have no function to perform. Order in the soul can doubtless be established in this way. But these are not the only ways. For although we may infer by proofs just what good and evil are, nevertheless, precepts have their proper role. Prudence and justice consist of certain duties, and duties are set in order by precepts. Moreover, judgment as to good and evil is itself strengthened by following up our duties, and precepts conduct us to this end for both are in accord with each other, nor can precepts take the lead unless the duties follow. 
they observe their natural order hence precepts clearly come first precepts it is said are numberless wrong again for they are not numberless so far as concerns important and essential things of course there are slight distinctions due to the time or the place or the person but even in these cases precepts are given which have a general application no one however it is said cures madness by precepts and therefore not wickedness either there is a distinction for if you rid a man of insanity he becomes sane again but if we have removed false opinions insight into practical conduct does not at once follow even though it follows counsel will none the less confirm one's right opinion concerning good and evil and it is also wrong to believe that precepts are of no use to madmen for though by themselves they are of no avail yet they are a help towards the cure both scolding and chastening reign in a lunatic note that i here refer to lunatics whose wits are disturbed but not hopelessly gone still it is objected laws do not always make us do what we ought to do and what else are laws than precepts mingled with threats now first of all the laws do not persuade just because they threaten precepts however instead of coercing correct men by pleading again laws frighten one out of communicating crime while precepts urge a man on to his duty besides the laws also are of assistance towards good conduct at any rate if they instruct as well as command on this point i disagree with posidonius who says i do not think that plato's laws should have the preambles added to them for a law should be brief in order that the uninitiated may grasp it all the more easily it should be a voice as it were sent down from heaven it should command not discuss nothing seems to me more dull or more foolish than a law with a preamble warn me tell me what you wish me to do i am not learning but obeying but laws framed in this way are helpful hence you will notice that a state with defective laws will have defective morals but it is said they are not of avail in every case well neither is philosophy and yet philosophy is not on that account ineffectual and useless in the training of the soul furthermore is not philosophy the law of life grant if we will that the laws do not avail it does not necessarily follow that advice also should not avail on this ground you ought to say that consolation does not avail and warning and exhortation and scolding and praising since they are all varieties of advice it is by such methods that we arrive at a perfect condition of mind nothing is more successful in bringing honorable influences to bear upon the mind or in straightening out the wavering spirit that is prone to evil than association with good men for the frequent seeing the frequent hearing of them little by little sinks into the heart and acquires the force of precepts we are indeed uplifted merely by meeting wise men and one can be helped by a great man even when he is silent i could not easily tell you how it helps us though i am certain of the fact that i have received help in that way phaedo says certain tiny animals do not leave any pain when they sting us so subtle is their power so deceptive for purposes of harm the bite is disclosed by a swelling 
and even in the swelling there is no visible wound. That will also be your experience when dealing with wise men. You will not discover how or when the benefit comes to you, but you will discover that you have received it. What is the point of this remark, you ask? It is that good precepts, often welcomed within you, will benefit you just as much as good examples. Pythagoras declares that our souls experience a change when we enter a temple and behold the images of the gods face to face, and await the utterances of an oracle. Moreover, who can deny that even the most inexperienced are effectively struck by the forces of certain precepts? For example, by such brief but weighty saws as this, nothing in excess. The greedy mind is satisfied by no gains. You must expect to be treated by others as you yourself have treated them. We receive a sort of shock when we hear such sayings. No one ever thinks of doubting them or of asking why. So strongly, indeed, does mere truth, unaccompanied by reason, attract us. If reverence reigns in the soul and checks vice, why cannot counsels do the same? Also, if rebuke gives one a sense of shame, why has not counsel the same power, even though it does use bare precepts? The counsel which assists suggestion by reason, which adds the motive for doing a given thing and the reward which awaits one who carries out and obeys such precepts is more effective and settles deeper in the heart. If commands are helpful, so is advice. But one is helped by commands, therefore one is helped also by advice. Virtue is divided into two parts, into contemplation of truth and conduct. Training teaches contemplation, and admonition teaches conduct. And right conduct both practices and reveals virtue. But if, when a man is about to act, he is helped by advice, he is also helped by admonition. Therefore, if right conduct is necessary to virtue, and if, moreover, admonition makes clear right conduct, then admonition also is an indispensable thing. There are two strong supports to the soul, trust in the truth and confidence. Both are the result of admonition. For men believe it, and when belief is established, the soul receives great inspiration, and is filled with confidence. Therefore, admonition is not superfluous. Marcus Agrippa, a great-souled man, the only person among those whom the civil wars raised to fame and power whose prosperity helped the state, used to say that he was greatly indebted to the proverb, Harmony makes small things grow, lack of harmony makes great things decay. He held that he himself became the best of brothers and the best of friends by virtue of this saying. And if proverbs of such a kind, when welcomed intimately into the soul, can mold this very soul, why cannot the department of philosophy which consists of such proverbs possess equal influence? Virtue depends partly upon training and partly upon practice. You must learn first, and then strengthen your learning by action. If this be true, not only do the doctrines of wisdom help us, but the precepts also, which check and banish our emotions by a sort of official decree. It is said, Philosophy is divided into knowledge and state of mind. For one who has learned and understood what he should do and avoid, 
is not a wise man until his mind is metamorphosed into the shape of that which he has learned. This third department, that a precept, is compounded from both the others, from dogmas of philosophy and state of mind. Hence it is superfluous as far as the perfecting of virtue is concerned. The other two parts are enough for the purpose. On that basis, therefore, even consolation would be superfluous, since this also is a combination of the other two, as likewise are exhortation, persuasion, and even proof itself. For proof also originates from a well-ordered and firm mental attitude. But all these things result from a sound state of mind, yet the sound state of mind also results from them. It is both creative of them and resultant from them. Furthermore, that which you mention is the mark of an already perfect man, of one who has attained the height of human happiness. But the approach to these qualities is slow, and in the meantime in practical matters the path should be pointed out for the benefit of one who is still short of perfection, but is making progress. Wisdom, by her own agency, may perhaps show herself this path without the help of admonition for she has brought the soul to a stage where it can be impelled only in the right direction. Weaker characters, however, need someone to precede them, to say, avoid this or do that. Moreover, if one awaits the time when one can know of oneself what the best line of action is, one will sometimes go astray, and by going astray will be hindered from arriving at the point where it is possible to be content with oneself the soul should accordingly be guided at the very moment when it is becoming able to guide itself. Boys study according to direction. Their fingers are held and guided by others so that they may follow the outlines of the letters. Next, they are ordered to imitate a copy and base thereon a style of penmanship. Similarly, the mind is helped if it is taught according to direction. Such facts as these prove that this department of philosophy is not superfluous. The question next arises whether this part alone is sufficient to make men wise. The problem shall be treated at the proper time, but at present, omitting all arguments, is it not clear that we need someone whom we may call upon as our preceptor in opposition to the precepts of men in general? There is no word which reaches our ears without doing us harm. We are injured both by good wishes and by curses. The angry prayers of our enemies instill false fears in us, and the affection of our friends spoils us through their kindly wishes. For this affection sets us a-groping after goods that are far away, unsure and wavering, when we really might open the store of happiness at home. We are not allowed, I maintain, to travel a straight road. Our parents and our slaves draw us into wrong. Nobody confines his mistakes to himself. People sprinkle folly among their neighbors and receive it from them in turn. For this reason, in an individual you find the vices of nations, because the nation has given them to the individual. Each man, in corrupting others, corrupts himself. He imbibes and then imparts. Badness, the result, is a vast mass of wickedness, because the worst in every separate person is concentrated into one mass. We should therefore have a guardian, as it were, to pluck us continually by the ear and dispel rumors and protest against popular enthusiasms. 
for you are mistaken if you suppose that our faults are inborn in us. They have come from without, have been heaped upon us. Hence, by receiving frequent admonitions, we can reject the opinions which din about our ears. Nature does not ally us with any vice. She produced us in health and freedom. She put before our eyes no object which might stir in us the itch of greed. She placed gold and silver beneath our feet, and bade those feet stamp down and crush everything that causes us to be stamped down and crushed. Nature elevated our gaze toward the sky, and willed that we should look upward to behold her glorious and wonderful works. She gave us the rising and the setting sun, the whirling course of the on-rushing world which discloses the things of earth by day and the heavenly bodies by night, the movements of the stars, which are slow if you compare them with the universe, but most rapid if you reflect on the size of the orbits which they describe with unslackened speed. She showed us the successive eclipses of sun and moon, and other phenomena, wonderful because they occur regularly, or because, through sudden causes, they leap into view, such as nightly trails of fire, or flashes in the open heavens unaccompanied by stroke or sound of thunder, or columns and beams and the various phenomena of flames. She ordained that all these bodies should proceed above our heads, but gold and silver, with the iron which, because of the gold and silver, never brings peace, she has hidden away, as if they were dangerous things to trust to our keeping. It is we ourselves that have dragged them into the light of day, to the end that we might fight over them. It is we ourselves who, tearing away the superincumbent earth, have dug out the causes and tools of our own destruction. It is we ourselves who have attributed our own misdeeds to fortune, and do not blush to regard as the loftiest objects those which once lay in the depths of the earth. Do you wish to know how false is the gleam that has deceived your ears? There is really nothing fouler and more involved in darkness than these things of earth, sunk and covered for so long a time in the mud where they belong. Of course they are foul. They have been hauled out through a long and murky mine-shaft. There is nothing uglier than these metals during the process of refinement and separation from the ore. Furthermore, watch the very workmen who must handle and sift the barren grade of dirt, the sort which comes from the bottom. See how soot-besmeared they are, and yet the stuff they handle soils the soul more than the body, and there is more foulness in the owner than in the workmen. It is therefore indispensable that we be admonished that we have some advocate with upright mind, and amid all the uproar and jangle of falsehood, hear one voice only. But what voice shall this be? Surely a voice which, amid all the tumult of self-seeking, shall whisper wholesome words into our deafened ear, saying, You need not be envious of those whom the people call great and fortunate. Applause need not disturb your composed attitude and your sanity of mind. You need not become disgusted with your calm spirit because you see a great man, clothed in purple, protected by the well-known symbols of authority. You need not judge the magistrate for whom the road is cleared to be any happier than yourself, whom this officer pushes from the road. 
if you would wield a command that is profitable to yourself and injurious to nobody clear your own faults out of the way there are many who set fire to cities who storm garrisons that have remained impregnable for generations and safe for numerous ages who raise mounds as high as the walls they are besieging who with battering rams and engines shatter towers that have been reared to a wondrous height there are many who can send their columns ahead and press destructively upon the rear of the foe who can reach the great sea dripping with the blood of nations but even these men before they could conquer their foe were conquered by their own greed no one withstood their attack but they themselves could not withstand desire for power and the impulse to cruelty at the time when they seemed to be hounding others they were themselves being hounded alexander was hounded into misfortune and dispatched to unknown countries by a mad desire to lay waste other men's territory do you believe that the man was in his senses who could begin by devastating greece the land where he received his education one who snatched away the dearest garden of each nation bidding spartans be slaves and athenians hold their tongues not content with the ruin of all the states which philip had either conquered or bribed into bondage he overthrew various commonwealths in various places and carried his weapons all over the world his cruelty was tired but it never ceased like a wild beast that tears to pieces more than its hunger demands already he has joined many kingdoms into one kingdom already greeks and persians fear the same lord already nations darius had left free submit to the yoke yet he passes beyond the ocean and the sun deeming it shame that he should shift his course of victory from the paths which hercules and bacchus had trod he threatens violence to nature herself he does not wish to go but he cannot stay he is like a weight that falls headlong its course ending only when it lies motionless it was not virtue or reason which persuaded Gnaeus Pompeius to take part in foreign and civil warfare. It was his mad craving for unreal glory. Now he attacked Spain and the faction of Sertorius. Now he fared forth to enchain the pirates and subdue the seas. These were merely excuses and pretexts for extending his power. What drew him into Africa, into the north, against Mithridates, into Armenia and all the corners of Asia. Assuredly it was his boundless desire to grow bigger, for only in his own eyes was he not great enough, and what impelled Gaius Caesar, to the combined ruin of himself and of the state. Renown, self-seeking, and the setting no limit to preeminence over all other men. He could not allow a single person to outrank him, although the state allowed two men to stand at its head do you think that gaius marius who was once consul he received this office on one occasion and stole it on all the others courted all his perils by the inspiration of virtue when he was slaughtering the teutons and the cimbri and pursuing jugurtha through the wilds of africa marius commanded armies ambition marius when such men as these were disturbing the world they were themselves disturbed like cyclones that whirl together what they have seized, but which are first whirled themselves, and can for this reason rush on with all the greater force, 
having no control over themselves. Hence, after causing such destruction to others, they feel in their own body the ruinous force which has enabled them to cause havoc to many. You need never believe that a man can become happy through the unhappiness of another. We must unravel all such cases, as are forced before our eyes and crammed into our ears. We must clear out our hearts, for they are full of evil talk. Virtue must be conducted into the place these have seized. A kind of virtue which may root out falsehood, and doctrines which contravene the truth, or may sunder us from the throng in which we put too great trust, and may restore us to the possession of sound opinions. For this is wisdom, a return to nature, and a restoration to the condition from which man's errors have driven us. It is a great part of health to have forsaken the counsellors of madness, and to have fled far from a companionship that is mutually baneful. That you may know the truth of my remark. See how different is each individual's life before the public from that of his inner self. A quiet life does not of itself give lessons in upright conduct. The countryside does not of itself teach plain living. No, but when witnesses and onlookers are removed, faults which ripen in publicity and display sink into the background. Who puts on the purple robe for the sake of flaunting it in no man's eyes? Who uses gold plate when he dines alone? Who, as he flings himself down beneath the shadow of some rustic tree, displays in solitude the splendor of his luxury? No one makes himself elegant only for his own beholding, or even for the admiration of a few friends or relatives. Rather does he spread out his well-appointed vices in proportion to the size of the admiring crowd. It is so. Clackerers and witnesses are irritants of all our mad foibles. You can make us cease to crave if you only make us cease to display. Ambition, luxury, and waywardness need a stage to act upon. You will cure all those ills if you seek retirement. Therefore, if our dwelling is situated amid the din of a city, there should be an adviser standing near us. When men praise great incomes, he should praise the person who can be rich with a slender estate, and measure his wealth by the use he makes of it. In the face of those who glorify influence and power, he should of his own volition recommend a leisure devoted to study, and a soul which has left the external and found itself. He should point out persons, happy in the popular estimation, who totter on their envied heights of power, who are dismayed and hold a far different opinion of themselves from what others hold of them. That which others think elevated is to them a sheer precipice. Hence, they are frightened and in a flutter whenever they look down the abrupt steep of their greatness. For they reflect that there are various ways of falling and that the topmost point is the most slippery. Then they fear that for which they strove, and the good fortune which made them weighty in the eyes of others weighs more heavily upon themselves. Then they praise easy leisure and independence, they hate the glamour, and try to escape while their fortunes are still unimpaired. Then at last you may see them studying philosophy amid their fear, and hunting sound advice when their fortunes go awry. For these two things are, as it were, at opposite poles. Good fortune and good sense.
that is why we are wiser when in the midst of adversity it is prosperity that takes away righteousness farewell end of letter ninety four recording by john van stan savannah georgia